Thanks for tuning in for another episode of MFA Writers. The pod team is taking a couple of weeks off for the holidays, so we've got a re-release this week of one of my favorite episodes from the past year, a truly lovely conversation with Chibwihe Obiachimba of Brown University. I hope you all enjoy it, or enjoy it again, and I also hope you have a wonderful holiday season. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with an all-new episode. Until then, you can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Chibuihe Obiachimba. Chibuihe grew up in southeastern Nigeria. He's a poet and essayist, and he's currently completing his MFA in poetry at Brown University. His writing has appeared or is forthcoming in the New York Times, the Paris Review, Harvard Review, Poet Lore, and elsewhere. He was awarded the 2021 St. Botolov Foundation Grant in the 2021 Frontier Poetry Prize for New Poets. Today, Chibuihe is going to read three poems for us. Life in the Village For years, there was only the exposed midriff of the coal mines. Then the lilac-trimmed silence of the hills. Then the birds, small soot-drenched robins, in the kitchen rafters, moving in and out of their routine ode. Then the myth that joy was anything more than an accidental crash of dry wings in the wet ossuary of the throat. Then the belief that, given the right circumstance, her old failures could coalesce someday into a full and brand new self. The bird, once rumored to eat timid children, had died multiple sub-deaths and had their besmeared fingers. It happened that she was dangerous, even while afraid. Burial Language Obsidian earth trapped beneath pink nails, fingers sifting earth's memories to unshrade and stitch back, but she is digging, unholstering the evil verb to bury, which doubles as the noun grave. She scratches the corners of her eyes and pulls pirouetted shadows, the things which must be erased forever from the archives behind her tongue. The black acre of language is where history hides its skeletons. See the fog thickening in the word forget. 
the towns leveled to ruins, the mist she must pass to get to the house and to her father. Bodies and their missing parts litter the square like scrambled letters, hear the murmur of the alphabets as they link arms like passers-by, constrained to bear witness how they clatter and give way to trembling scales of serbs, how the earth swells to receive her shaved hairs first before the body bag, how her hands cup the blue sky into an O, narrowing a bomber jet into view. Catalog 009. It was a lousy dream. Such dreams were common in the months after the war ended, and the soldiers began to leave town on their motorbikes with empty rucksacks and kalashnikovs still wet with lead. And the village inched back slowly and without much persuasion into its old cement pillars and beams. In the open air markets, the surplus of imported American goods in tin cans and opaque bottles tagged with faded blue American flags. Children sprouted dreams in their bed that night, and these dreams began to cling on them morning long like shadows. And sometimes, throughout the day. Dreams of Sunday parties and the return of turntables in the streets. It was as unreal as what happened here. Whatever bad memory they went to bed bearing on their foreheads, they erased in the world of dream with dreams. Weeks of starvation and meager rations of milk powder and egg yolks were flushed down their dream gullets with mortar, vitamin, and eyes. Women replaced the stony faces of the soldiers with the tooty smiles of their husbands and fathers. When children saw oiled gizzards or rabbit heads grilling on repurposed bicycle wheels, they thought of slabs of corned beef and sardines. They say, if you push hard enough, the night will give way to more nights. And they did this with their loud megaphone snores. Moths and cicadas, having lived in this world for centuries, dreamed of ribbons in sealed garment bags and boxes. Owls, too, conjuring nostalgic hours in the mission church, where no candle had dropped an iota of wax since the war moved its hands this way. It was a lousy dream indeed, laughter falling out of a woman's mouth, laughter perched on the mangled side mirrors of speeding army trucks, as though it was a line of preening turaco beds. Stupid you. Did you forget it was in the April of 1968? Did you forget we left Okigwe on a cold and colorless midnight, bursting with crickets and the wail of hyenas? You dragged a flat-tired bicycle, and I pushed stacks of portmanteau boxes up the hill in a wheelbarrow someone had nailed together out of used melina wood. Of course, the brand-new aluminium roofing sheets and window louvers could fit into no one's hands. And the doors 
We left them inside the bright magenta boxes they had arrived in. A family of squirrels and bats were trapped in the burning rafters. It was hard to look away. The ones who fled the village nailed their family names on tree barks and across the twisted sheen of the footbridge. Those who sheltered inside hastily dug bunkers slept in the bunkers forever. Chibuihe, that was so lovely to hear you read that, and I'm so excited to talk to you. Such a delight. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. So, when I was reading your work, it, it's very clear that your home and your upbringing in Nigeria is really important to your writing, right? Like, these three poems seem to be set in Nigerian villages. So, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your hometown, your life there, and why you find it so inspiring to your work. Yeah, um, thank you. So I grew up um, in a small farming um, village. I mean, southeastern Nigeria. And um, for a lot of people who know um, the southeastern part of Nigeria, it was part of, um, it was actually the Republic of Biafra um, between um, 1967 and 1970 when the Civil War ended. So very much so, I grew up and surrounded by this sort of residue of um, the Civil War. And then, of course, much of it was shredded in, in silence. There's this sort of um, thick silence that, that you often experience or you often witness um, in spaces, in locations where something terrible had um, happened. So but then it was um, while growing up, um, I heard the bits of these stories, and when I when I was um, around um, age six or seven, um, I think I started understanding my mother's story about the Civil War. Um, just um, a back um, story. My parents met and married during the Civil War, so um, that um, that story is somehow part of my family story and my family origin. Yeah. So when I think um, when I um, when I was around the age of seven or thereabouts, I started sort of grasping what it means, you know, to have lived, for my parents to have um, lived through this experience and for them to have survived, you know. So, and outside of that, um, the, the horrible experience of the Civil War, I think generally um, the Southeastern region is very, it's an interesting um, place, you know. And then in my writing, I think I'm always moving or leaning um, towards um, sort of um, a recording, um, a diary keeping of these fast disappearing um, village rural life, you know, these bits and pieces that uh, are fast sort of um, giving way to proper modernization. So um, in terms of my poetry generally, I think um, it's difficult to talk about writing poetry or writing generally without um, talking about um, where I grew up, the family I grew up in. So I think I was surrounded by grandparents who were um, traditional um, African religious um, adherents. It, it means that um, even though my parents, my mother um, um, trained us um, in the Christian religion, it means that sometimes on specific days you see um, uh, my mother's uncle sort of um, doing incantations and then the poetry and language of um, ritual sort of um, captivated me earlier on. There is this sort of um, beckoning, reaching out to silence, or for me, what I considered silence. 
But then in that silence, um, my mother's uncle believed that um, these deities sort of live there and they could communicate not with the um, ordinary or everyday language of communication, but then with the language of poetry, which is the language of incantation. So I think I was um, captivated by that. And when I finally started writing poetry, it made sense that my poetry would sort of incorporate um, a lot of um, um, apostrophe, sort of um, reference or beckon into presence that is sort of um, outside of my reach. And also my need um, to use language to summon something. I think it presented itself best in the medium of poetry because poetry allowed for this sort of um, reaching out to these um, beckoning, this sort of um, the need or the, the quest, you know, to capture the ineffable. So I think prose um, <laughs> didn't um, give me that um, sort of permission or didn't give me agency to think about that, the way poetry sort of lent itself, not easily, but lent itself to consider the ineffable. One of the things I wrote down after reading your poetry was that the characters are juggling their history and their dreams for the future while facing war and violence in the present. And I was thinking about how as human beings, we're, we're always negotiating between the place we came from and the place we're trying to go to. And so I was curious in what ways you find your, your past and your history and your language and that Nigerian culture affecting your present and your thoughts about the future. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know how that, um, how much um, of this is, it's a personal, um, I'm a sad, depressed, sort of um, generally neurotic um, person. So generally, <laughs> I mean, if um, um, as far as um, personality goes, um, I don't know how much of that um, is just um, um, specific to my own um, experience as a human being living in, the, in this world. And also how much of that is, um, well, I mean, talking about, uh, I don't want to just go um, talk about historical trauma in this just sort of um, um, straightforward way, but I think um Historical trauma does that to people, that um, while you fled um, violence, there's also a part of you that is reaching back. I think um, not so much to relieve or to recapture what has been lost, but to find a way to um, articulate um, that trauma, that incident, what happened, that sort of um, disconnection, dislocation that happened. So constantly you are, you seem to be reaching back. Um, and I think somehow um, poets of exile or writers who are in exile, for example, I mean, there is this sort of tangible um, quality, this longing that um, is always present in their writing. Not because suddenly they love their country so much, but uh, it's just this sense of dislocation and try, trying to remedy it, trying to sort of um, stitch back or trying to build a bridge between the former self and the new self, between the, the homeland and then this sense of sort of um, globalize, um, the, the globalized idea of home that is um, that lacks um, rootedness, you know, that it's not um, rooted in place or fixed in time. Yeah, I think that globalization idea was something I was also thinking about when I was reading these poems because, you know, war is a very visceral and tragic example of cultures clashing, but your poems also explore more subtle ways in which outside cultures encroach on the lives of the characters in your poems. So, for example, in Catalog 009, you wrote, 
In the open-air markets, a surplus of imported American goods and tin cans and opaque bottles tagged with faded blue American flags. So it made me wonder about your experience now living in the U.S., a country that has for generations encroached on the cultures of others. I'm curious if living here um, has affected your thoughts on your own culture and history and if it's magnified the effects of this kind of cultural appropriation and assimilation. Yeah, um, yeah, thank you. I think, yeah, it, somehow it, it has. I think it has amplified, um, I mean, our sense um, of existing, I mean, within a sort of continuum, you know. I, w- I would tell this story. Um, so before I came to the U.S., um, I lived all, all my life in Nigeria. I grew up in Nigeria. So um, my relationship with Nigeria particularly, it's, it's that of um, a country that um, is beyond sort of redemption. And then that is um, due to my own experience as a queer man who experienced um, violent homophobia that is state-sanctioned. But then there's something I removed in my configuration of the world. Um, what was lacking was the idea of um, not viewing the global world as some kind of um, continuum, like Nigeria exists outside of this space and then um, America is no paradise, right? So, and then um, wherever you go, there will be a sense of dislocation, displacement. And then um, particularly, um, we are living in a very politically charged moment globally, and it's not restricted to Nigeria. So, I mean, this sense of um, um, this idea was lost to me. You know, I couldn't grasp that even if you leave Nigeria, go to the USA, there will still be... um, there will still be issues, very present and urgent issues, and issues that would determine um, your own survival like that. So I think coming to the U.S. Um, sort of opened my eyes, like sort of gave me a certain kind of um, education, orientation to begin to understand. I think I'm still in the process of making sense of that. In, in 2020, last two years, I wrote an essay about them. Um, growing up um, quite in Nigeria and being a black man in Nigeria. So it was just sort of um, a response, you know, that stemmed out of my own um, chastisement. I was trying to caution myself, educating myself that you left Nigeria and for a supposedly sort of paradise. Now look at what you have gotten yourself into. And then it demands a um, a different kind of political engagement. So it demands um, a different kind of... um, knowledge, a different kind of education, you know. And then for you to be a citizen of the world means that you have to have a literacy in global sort of um geopolitics or all of that, you know. So in the the poems, um I um what I'm grappling in these poems are stories of people that are exist outside of me. They are a generation away from me, my parents' generation. And also it happened um recently after Nigeria got into its independence. So it made sense that um, the presence of um, empire, be it um, British, um, um, the British Empire or the American Empire would somehow show itself because um, it was a war that was um, fought locally, but then um, the players um, were foreign um, powers like the U- Britain then. And then America showed up not, not as um, an active participant in the war, but then it showed up as sort of um, providing aid and then um, um, providing um, care to refugees and that sort of the Christian missionary group, Caritas and um, the Baptist Church. So I think um, it's difficult to talk about war 
anywhere without um, the presence of the foreigner, you know, and the powerful foreigner in whichever guise, you know, they come in, either as saviors or as um, armed dealers or all of that. One thing that made me think of as you were speaking, one of my close friends in, in my school here at UMKC, Milton Gomez, he's a really brilliant PhD student who's from Colombia. And he told me once um, that America is a really beautiful country from the outside. And I just thought that was that was a really interesting it was really interesting to hear that, you know, from his outside perspective, America seems so beautiful. And then coming here, he had to renegotiate what it was actually like to live here, right? So, exactly, yeah. I think um, um, well, it's the the right word is renegotiate because um, it just begins from the moment you step your foot um on an American soil, be it if you go to the islands or like the Americas generally. Because um, in Nigeria, I think it, Nigeria is not isolated. Of course, um, our education is a little bit of um too international. For Nigerians' own good, you know, we are exposed to culture, American media, books, and all of that. But then, uh, and I think somehow it feeds um, into the question of um, location. Is that your presence in a particular region? It it might sound a little bit spiritual, but it's not. I think um, there's a sort of um, in, in psychogeography. If you're talking about that, each place, each um, city, um, each um, country has some um, some kind of um, potent. Um, psychological um, 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 impact, it sort of, um, it stares in the people who live or newcomers. Once you step your foot um, into America, the tension rises, not just um, because of the fact that you're a black man, um, that is part of it. And I think that is a, a major part of it. But then your sense of being a foreigner, you know, it happens everywhere. But in this country of immigrants, for example, and um, it's sort of, um, it's different. Your your um your relationship your body reacts um produces this um visceral response as a newcomer to America, and suddenly you are thinking of history. You are thinking about um when was the first time I had um, the word America? When was the first time I encountered an American? And how different are those Americans I encountered say in Nigeria different from these ones I'm seeing now? How is their posture? How is their response to my presence here? You know, so this sort of um, slight um, um, awareness builds up, you know, and then I think it's also the moment um, this renegotiation starts, you know, so in, in mentally you begin to map your relationship with Americans and your relationship with the idea of um, America as a nation state and then the idea of America as an empire and the idea of America as a cultural producer, you know. So all these stages of um, relationship suddenly you begin to question them, trying to make sense of all of that, yeah. Well, let's talk about the making of a poem, or as you put it before the interview, the anguish and extreme joy of the writing process. I don't know about you, but for me, it almost always starts with anguish and then moves towards the direction of joy when I'm writing. I often start with an idea and then struggle for long periods to find the voice and form and energy that will sustain it until the end. But I write fiction, and so I'm sure it's quite different for you writing poetry. So I'm curious, what does your process look like when writing a poem? Where do you usually start? I think um, it's interesting to hear your own um, relationship to the writing process. Mine is quite the opposite. Like, it's just quite the opposite because I think it begins with extreme joy, the ecstasy, the excitement of um, 
of an idea, you know, I live very much in my imagination. So I construct um, um, the poem first in my imagination, which is um, in my imagination, it's possible. It's like these um, incandescent soft, you know, but the <laughs> process of transferring that to the page is where the anguish begins. Because I think my conception of um, a poem, it's too beautiful to be true. Not beauty in the way of um, aesthetics. It's just um, what is happening in the poem. The fact that um, language will be made possible, like, you know, that somehow you can, um, you can forge the thoughts into tangible material language, right? So, you know, so that it's very exciting. When I'm putting it um, down on paper, means um, like a journey through language, you know, so between language. There's also, of course, um, the language of the imagination, which is like mental pictures, you know, senses and like tension, impulse, all these various sort of emotional outbursts that, you know, it's it's really orgasmic in some ways. But then moving into language becomes very difficult because you're thinking about vocabulary now, you're thinking about um, the world view of the language, you know, my, my, my mother tongue is not English and I don't write in Igbo. So these are sort of um, multiple languages, the um, language of the imagination and then the language of my mother tongue, which I think is, I dream and think in Igbo. But the poem has to exist in English somehow. So um, crossing that over, I think that's where the anguish begins. And then I'm disappointed suddenly that I'm unable to recapture exactly will recapture um, the urgency of the poem when it first appeared, when it first um, came to me, you know. So this is where the anguish begins, you know, that I have failed. Um, like um, language um, eludes me. I cannot grasp it, you know. So it's just, um, and I'm going to tell you this, I mean, at the risk of sounding dramatic, but then um, I often weep, not because I'm sad, it's just because what I've perceived can no can never make its way into um, material language, you know. It's lost, you know. So you know, you have to deal with this um, constant loss of a fragment, you know, of, of um, um, an idea of um, that um, sense of place, you know. It's like a painter. I don't know um, when when you are confronted um, with an image, a landscape, and you are reproducing it, and suddenly you realize that. Um, um, your palette lacks um, a specific color, you know, maybe that um, tone of yellow or red. It's not available. You can't even um, purchase it in the market. You know? So that is um, the sort of um, loss and, you know, I feel, you know, and that is also part of the anguish. And I've already um, spoken about um, getting lost in, in translation, you know, this sort of um, displacement that happens, um, psychic displacement in a, a landscape of your own making, a world of your own making, your imagination, suddenly you lose track of time, you lose your way out of it, you know. So a syntax is so jumbled that you don't know what brought you there and you don't know how to escape that sort of um, mesh. Yeah, but it's 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 beautiful that you try, right? And that we all try to do it, right? Because we, we have these images or ideas in our head, but those images and ideas come with feeling and come with emotion and that trying to translate that it's like you said trying to paint that color into language is so difficult and maybe in some ways impossible but to try 
And then those moments when you write something that perhaps doesn't quite get to how you felt in that original moment, but creates a similar feeling for someone else that's as powerful, that's maybe the best we can hope for. Yeah, that's correct. Because like, I, my, my thesis um, advisor tells me sometimes you have to get out of the way, you know, and then, I mean, she puts it, um, she puts it bluntly, but then um, that's exactly, you know, just to think of it, that's exactly what is happening. You know, sometimes the, the, art, the artist has to sort of um, step aside, you know, because um, sometimes you have to see yourself as a medium, you know, like things pass through you and then you are not the reader, you know, as much as it's possible for you to center yourself as the artist and the one creating the work, I think somehow the work belongs to the reader. So, and then when my professor tells me that sometimes I have to like really make a um, genuine effort to center the reader or to imagine the reader and how much of um, this will be clear to the reader, you know, how much of that my struggle is actually no struggle. Is actually me sort of serving an ego. Because, of course, I mean, in the writing process, we never talk about how the ego sort of shows up once you open um, the page, you know, the blank space, the white space. Um, also, you are staring at it, and then you are not actually seeing the, the page, the, the blank space. You are seeing yourself reflected, you know, um, literally. And then how much of um, the hesitation, the writer's block, um, the sadness, it's you sort of trying to please yourself. I take that um, comment, get out of the way, you know, get out of your own way. I think you're right that ego does play a big part of it because we, like you kind of alluded to, we think of writing as something that's ours, that we're creating, we're creating the meaning in the words, right? But I've been thinking about this recently, that it's impossible to create meaning alone. The writer needs the reader and vice versa to create the meaning in a piece of writing. Yeah, yeah, that's symbiosis, yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, um, you, the writer, um, sort of um, cannot exist. I think there's an African proverb, a South African proverb, actually, that says, uh, um, I am because we are, sort of, you know. So that's symbiotic um, relationship um, between the writer and reader, you know. Sometimes, um, for me, sometimes in my own sort of um self-absorption, I sort of um, forget that there is a reader at the end of um, the communication chain, like the telephone line, for example. Yeah, so I think it makes sense um, to sometimes put the reader in the context. You know, something changed recently for me with this, um, with my work, my poems, is that I'm like thinking about it, thinking about my work, my poetry, as um, being in conversation with my mom, so I usually tend to write um, very abstract, um, very sort of um, out there poems. But then, and then I was um, running into multiple problems. But then recently I started thinking about, um, because much of the story I know about the war are stories my mother told me, are stories, events, things that happened to her. And then at some point, my mom wanted to be a writer, actually produced this sort of um, couple of poems, but couldn't um, carry it um, forward. Now, what if I'm writing this poem and at some point it will be totally inaccessible to her, for example, you know? So now I'm seeing it as I'm kind of being in communication with her, you know, so seeing her at um, the other end of the writing process, that somehow 
if you, if you are reaching for legibility, you are reaching for legibility because you want, I want my mother to understand what is going on here. So if I'm reaching for um, historical accuracy, I'm reaching for historical accuracy because I want my mom to sort of um, confirm, oh, this happened. And somehow there is a joy that comes from it. I've shared a few poems with her and then she said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you remember this and I told you. Well, I think that's beautiful. I think, you know, it's uh, for me, for my writing, I like to think of it like an implied reader as well, someone who I imagine the writing is for. And so, who better than your mom? That's beautiful. I think that's great. (laughs) So, so we've talked quite a bit about the anguish of writing poetry or writing in general. So, what about the extreme joy that you referred to earlier? What is it about writing, do you think, that is so joyful and rewarding? Yeah. um, Wow, 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 wow. Joy. You know, the aspect of the writing process that, um, apart from just the spark of imagination, for me, it's two-pronged. So the first part is um, reaching for um, historical accuracy. So I think so, um, the project I'm work- currently working on sort of has a lot to do with the um, history of, um, um, of, colon- of colonialism in Nigeria, in West Africa broadly, and also um, the specificity of um, the civil war, trying to capture that. You know, of course, I'm, I'm very likely not to. Um, it's not an official um, document, so I think um, there are there are parts of it that will be fictionalized. There are parts of it that um, language would take over at the expense of historical accuracy. But I think what gives me excitement somehow is reaching for accuracy and getting it, being specific. It's like when you chew um, an arrow and then it hits the target. That sort of um um it's it's I think there's a a bit of noise like it resonates you know it's like when you strum a guitar string you know so when it does that I think it reverberates and gets to me I find it really sort of liberating that yeah I'm sort of I'm stepped away from this moment beyond it I've captured it you know the other part that gives me joy is the work itself you know what it means to be working with language and trying to render stories, the lives of people who somehow, you know, exist outside of literature, like to do that, to include them, to write about my hometown, to write about all these small, minute details of growing up and killing a goat and weeding a farm, like bringing it into literature. I think I feel a sense of um, empowerment. There's a sense of empowerment that comes from that agency and giving agency to these quote-unquote minor characters, you know, and that these people that have been rendered um, invisible, these people that have been brought out, that exist only on the footnotes of history, moving them up into the page or onto the page, centering them, albeit for a moment, you know, capturing um, a side of their lives that... um, has so far existed um, in oblivion or unknown. You know, I think that joy, that sense of um, power, it's it's not tangible. It doesn't translate into money or fame or anything. But then being able to do that, to render people's lives on the page and to call it literature and to call it poetry and to share it with others, I think um, there's a joy that comes from it. That economic aspect you brought up, that's interesting to me because when I look back at my most joyful moments writing. It was when I was younger and I was just writing something that was for fun and someone would read it and they would 
have a positive reaction to it, right? And so I wonder sometimes how that translates to a formal setting like an MFA program, like a career in writing in which your your economic stability is connected to the writing and it becomes a product. So how do you separate those two things? How do you exist in this formal environment of an MFA program where you're where you're supposed to produce, right? There's that word produce, that capitalist term, but still maintain the joy of writing and doing it for for yourself and for that joy instead of for someone else. Yeah, I think I'm going to answer this question and then hope that my siblings, my family never hear this. <laughs> Listen to this podcast. Yeah, because uh, I'm Nigerian and also um, personally, I'm, I'm the first person from my family to go to college and then and to come to the US to study poetry is scandalous. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean that you're coming to study poetry? Yeah, but then... Um, and then my mom believes that somehow I'm going to make tons of money because Nigerians come to the U.S. and study um, finance and work in finance and become medical doctor. But here I am studying poetry. But then, <laughs> yeah, but then um, I think um, separating um, the economic aspect of poetry and also um, and spreading it from the intrinsic joy um, it brings and also um, separating it from the use of language, the essential work that poets or that we all should be doing with language, trying to restore language, trying to not save it, but, you know, continue this process of um, regeneration, you know, recreating language. So that, um, it's this is what I've always wanted to do. This is what brings me joy. And then it has taken a long time for me to arrive here. I went to college to study um, political science. And then um, I, after um, studying political science, I was frustrated, um, you know, because I knew that this isn't what I wanted to do. You know, being in class and then going to the library to um, read poetry, to you know, do all of that. So right now I feel being an MFA program is the ability to come into your own, this space that you've always craved, you know, like, Dreams are almost impossible to meet. But then this is the first time like I feel that I've able, um, I was able to sort of approach and enter and possess a dream, a childhood dream. So I think that, and it's something that you want to keep with you, especially in this world where people are getting disappointed or disillusioned with jobs and all of that. So finally, you are lucky enough to be doing what you've always wanted to do and what somehow um, has the capacity to include all these quirks and idiosyncrasies that you've always cherished as a child. You know, you can bring in your toys into a poem. You can bring in um, like a nonsensical daydream, bring it into a poem and make it meaningful, you know, render it sort of um, or dignify it, you know, because you're working with language. I think that's sort of, um, it's, it's um, that aspect of um, writing goes beyond the material and economic aspect of it. I think most nights um, I go to bed thinking, well, yeah, we're living your dream. Yeah, so let's talk about the MFA a little bit. Brown University's Literary Arts MFA program is a two-year fully funded program that offers tracks in fiction, poetry, and digital cross-disciplinary writing. So what made you want to pursue an MFA and how did you end up at Brown? Originally, I uh, came to the U.S. not because of an MFA. I was, um, I was um, um, a scholar at Trisk at Harvard. 
I wanted to do a, get an MFA, but um, I was my plan was to get it maybe sometime after my thirties, like to live out my twenties without um, pursuing an MFA degree or getting an MFA degree. But then um, I think due to um, a lot of um, circumstances, I decided um, to go ahead since it was um, in, in my plan, my original plan. So I decided to go ahead and do it. But before I applied to Brand, I applied for their um, International Writers Program. So, and then um, I think I was speaking to my friend, my the director of my program at Harvard, and then she said, you've been writing a lot and almost every conversation, poetry comes up for you. And um, why not sort of um, go ahead and get an MFA? And then, um, so she said, um, Brown, the sort of writing I've seen you do, of all the programs um, in the US, I think um, Brown will be the best fit for you. And I looked it up and it was exactly what I wanted in an MFA program, you know, because I write poetry and I write, um, I write a little bit of um, prose and fragments of um, fiction and all of that. And I do photography, I do collage, I do painting and all of that. So I felt like Brown was the best shot and the best place to go if I wanted to um, nurture all these sort of um, multiple parts of me, my, multiple parts of my creative um, abilities. Yeah, so based on what I've read about the program, the MFA at Brown seems to embrace experimentation. On their website, they say that students are exposed to many literary traditions and anti-traditions and are encouraged to develop their independent voices and unique artistic visions. So it sounds like that kind of embrace of experimentation and that um, ability to not only write poetry but work on different types of art wall at Brown was something that attracted you to the program. Maybe you can talk a bit about the experimentation at Brown. Yeah, I mean, the experimentation, there's a way it's used um, in, in, um, outside of um, Brown University. When people talk about experimentation, they, um, there's a way they put it, and sometimes I would want to tell them, well, I mean, our workshop sessions are not um, seance sessions. We don't evoke the dead. It's just like, <laughs> and then we don't, um, um, it's just writing, you know. But I think it's, it just means that um, um, there is no restriction. It's unbounded. You know, you, will, you have this sort of freedom to do whatever you want, to um, engage with your work from outside of um, um, accepted or traditional modes to break away from that mode. You know, it's, it's actually encouraged that you learn to break away from that mode. Um, there is something about my cohort um, is that I don't know how much because I'm, but from what I've, conversation I've had with um, graduates of Brown, it seems like my, uh, my cohorts, most of us write what you would call traditional poetry, what you would refer to as traditional poetry, you know, um, which is like mostly on the page unlike the previous um, um, cohort. So, and I think um, that has to do with the fact that um, you are not restricted. You're not sort of um, corralled um, into a particular style or it's not that nobody enforces you to do theater or to do sculpture when you are not um, inclined to do that. So you already have um, a kind of a vision for your own work, but then you are encouraged to just um, go a step away to incorporate for me, for the work I'm doing right now, I incorporate a lot of collage into it. So um, <clears throat> this is something that I figured um, I would want to do with this project. I felt that um, sometimes language is not enough. You have to find um, 
um, another way to communicate what you want to communicate. You want to, um, if you want to reach for something that is beyond language, if you want to sort of, um, for me in this project, I'm insisting on leaving a kind of a material trace of colonialism, including it in my work. So in the case of Brown, it was welcomed when I suggested it. it was like, well, this is good. You can do it. And then um, they shared, uh, my professors um, shared um, articles, um, shared um, materials that will help me figure out exactly what I, I want to do. I, I suppose in other programs, um, there will be a little bit of um, restriction or you will not um, get this sort of a moral support that Brown gives you. So I think that's just um, the aspect of experimentation. It's just um, likely based on what you are working on, based on suggestions, and you get enormous encouragement and support, you know, from faculty going ahead um, with what you want to do. There is no sort of um, um, restriction or conflict. Yeah, I think that's the word. There's no conflict. You know, nothing comes between you and the dream that you or the vision you have for your work. And there's also this track in digital and cross-disciplinary work at Brown. And apparently students in this track can incorporate materials from a discipline other than writing, such as music, visual, or performance art. So that kind of sounds like what you're describing, that you've been allowed to do that as well. But I'm, I'm curious if you know students who are actually in this track and the kinds of work that they're producing in the program. Yeah, I think um, that's that's correct. So I have a um, theory of my cohorts. Um, one of them is a violinist and the other one works with glass and the other one is um, a, a filmmaker. So I think um, um, two of them um, took classes in poetry. So um, they are allowed to cross-register. Um, I have um, one of my cohorts who has consistently taken um, fiction class. The three workshops, um, register for poetry and also register for um, register in the poetry and also register in the fiction class. So um, for my friend um, who is um, a violinist, um, I think that goes hand in hand with um, the sort of poetry they are interested in. And there's also the aspect of people who work with, with coding. So there are, um, I have a colleague who works, um, a former colleague rather, who works um, with um, coding language. Most of the work they do exists outside of material space. So it's the system entirely on the ether, creating visual work and soundscape and all of that. So I think um, you can actually do anything you, you I mean, any sort of um, creative um, medium you want to engage with in your work. Everything possible, ceramic, glass work, and then um, um, clay sculpture, and then um um, dance, visual art, all of it is included. You're free to you know, bring that into your work. Well, I noticed that in the program, it's a two-year program, and that students have two courses each semester. They take a workshop and then they take an elective. And it seems like the electives can be courses in pretty much anything, literature, history, philosophy, theater, religious studies, studio art, or workshops and other genres. So it sounds like there's a lot of flexibility in what classes you take as well. It's really open to whatever you want. So what have been some of your favorite classes outside of the workshops? Absolutely. So um, you are allowed, your, um, the mandatory um, sort of course load is you take the poetry or fiction workshop or the workshop um in your specific genre, just one. And then the elective um, could come from anywhere. So I've, um, I've taken um, a course um, in first-person history, and then I've taken a course um, which I might call my most um, the most interesting um, elective I took was um, 
writing in the community. So because I've always um, cherished um, the idea of um, writing that exists within a community that incorporates some um, elements of social justice, activism, and co- community building. So um, last spring, I took um, this course with um, the Lenny Sikalianus, writers in the community. Bef- before, the, before the spring semester, I was um, planning on starting a literary journal for queer writers um, on the continent, on the African continent. So I figured that um, if there's a, a course that will give me hands-on skill to sort of um, go into that would be this I'm writing in the community, you know. So, and it was really fantastic. It was one of the most exhilarating um, classes I took, more so because um, we had to work with students in the local uh, elementary school, like teach and talk to them about um, writing and reading. So it sort of existed. It was writing that existed outside of um, the academic space that went into the community. Um, in most cases, um, I think it was the p- pandemic that stopped it. In most cases, um, the class goes um, to prison, sort of goes um, to community centers and interact with um, the locals, you know, start writing workshops and lead them through maybe a couple of sessions, creative writing workshops. So I think it was the most um, interesting because it came at the exact same time I needed that sort of skill, you know. So then I was able to put it to use almost immediately. So my project for the class was starting the literary magazine. So, and then it took off. What's the name of the magazine? It's Chiku Magazine. Okay, well, we'll be sure to put it on our website so that people can find it. And then you also told me that you think of the MFA as an apprenticeship an opportunity to read all the poetry books that you had no access to in Nigeria. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, that was me also going back to um, Nigeria. So in my in the southeastern region, there is this sort of um, economic system where apprenticeship, um, it's sort of very popular um, in the southeastern part of Nigeria. And um, it literally means you go study under someone or learn a trade with someone. So for me, I... I think of the MFA program as exactly that, an apprenticeship. It's just this window to consume, to really dedicate your time. You know, And for me, what I find really important in the writing process is to read. Much of that is to make up for my lack of exposure to books when I was growing up. So I grew up in a small town. I didn't have library. I didn't read my first poetry until um, I went to um, secondary school, actually. So it's just like, um, I think somehow, I don't know how much of this is true, but I have this sort of um, overwhelming sense of inadequacy. And someone who enjoys reading poetry, I think there's a, um, a joy in reading poetry, not writing, in being sort of um, participating in, in a poet's world, in, in their creation. So I think um, for me, this MFA program specifically is helping me do that. I have tons of poetry books, you know, and I, it, it's providing the resources to, you know, to buy the books. It's I can go to the library and pick up books almost every day without feeling guilty, you know, like you could just um, read and get the support you need. And in terms of um, the writing process, you know, talk to um, professors, like email people. And, then, oh, I'm working on this um, material. Would you mind sort of reading and making a comment, and then you get it instantly or maybe before the week runs out. So I think that experience um, 
it's comparable only to an apprenticeship to where someone is sort of um, responsible for your development, in this case, literary development, you know. Except that, well, in southeastern Nigeria, if you are graduating from an apprenticeship, you get a donation from your boss. But then, well, in this case, <laughs> there's no donation. So. <laughs> Don't hold your breath on that one, I think. <laughs> well, okay, so you mentioned support. I want to talk about that a little bit. So like you said, in an apprenticeship, you'd be working under uh, a professional of some kind and getting clear support and guidance on how to do something. Have you felt at Brown that you've gotten that kind of support and guidance from the professors in the program? And specifically as an international student, have you felt supported and comfortable at Brown? I think um, I'll answer it before the international student part, because here, yeah, um, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, really. And I think um, for most part, um, I've been a needy student. I've always been a needy student, I mean, to put it bluntly. Yeah. So I think um, Brown has um, given me this specific um, targeted support not as an international student, you know. So it's hard for Brown because Brown sort of um, insists on a, a certain independence, artistic independence. So, um, but then when you reach out, you know, you get support. It doesn't come. It's not um, part of the program. You know, you, you are expected to work, outside, to exist outside of the department, to do most of your work as, you know, an, an artist, you know. Um, it's not a colony, you know, so the sense of community is tangible and felt, but then it also sort of prizes independence. But once you reach out to professors, to the faculty, you get immediate response. And I think for me, from from my first year, I've always constantly reached out and then whatever, in whatever way that I, I sort of um, think I need support. So I've done two independent studies. Yeah, so I think um, it's, it's really... Um, it's 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 not common for a graduate student um, to get two independent studies in a two-year program, you know. But I've gotten that because I made like, my request, and then I, I prefer working one-on-one with professors. You know, you don't do well in workshop settings, so, but and that has been available to me, which I'm really grateful. But in terms of international students, um, there are no targeted support for international students. I think actually the opposite is the case because there are sort of opportunities that are available to American students or MFA students who are Americans that are not available to international students. And it's not um, an institutional thing. It's moral. It has a lot to do with um, tax system in the U.S. You know, so there are there are some kind of grants that um, you cannot access because, of course, of taxing and all of that um, bureaucratic um, baggage. So, but then. Um, if you're talking about um, general support, it's available, but then you have to ask. And I mentioned that Brown is fully funded. So according to the website, all students receive fellowships in their first year and teaching assistantships in the second year, during which you teach one undergraduate writing workshop per semester. So are you currently teaching? Yeah, um, yeah, that's correct. I taught last year, um, last semester rather, and then also doing my final teaching this semester. How's it going? Fantastic, you know. I think um, it's it's the greatest introduction to American culture. Teach undergraduates, so and then um, it's been really eye opening, and also um, it gives you um, this stride. You know, you're talking about poetry, but then talking it as um as somehow a master. You're not a master, but like there's this authority which makes you you know second guess yourself at home so that you don't second guess yourself in the classroom and then it also um, broadens your view and you you develop a different kind of engagement with poetry that this time you're trying to pass it on 
to students. Yeah. So last semester was really interesting because the poetry my students submitted last semester, I was constantly amazed by the quality of it and by their deep engagement and interest in poetry as an art form, not as this sort of um, diary keeping. As an art form, it was really mind blowing, and it's also happening this semester. And then um, at Brown, you um, you have the opportunity to design your syllables. So you do every aspect of the teaching work. You design, you teach, you grade. So it's a full cost load here, and um, yeah, you mentor students, and um, so I also appreciate that aspect of it because um, being entrusted with that sort of um, amount of um, responsibility. And then you also get training, adequate training before the teaching starts. So pedagogy is really stressed. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, carrying over from that idea of flexibility and experimentation, uh, being open to new ideas. That's cool that they allow you all to kind of design your classrooms the way you want to design yeah, them yeah, as well. Yeah. And I'm curious also about your life outside of the classroom. So I saw online that um, Brown has a visiting uh, writers series where poets and prose writers come and speak either in person or virtually. And it seems like they do that once a week. So I'm curious if you've attended any of those, what they've been like or other events. What's what's life like in Providence, Rhode Island? I mean, Providence is a small town, but it's um, I've lived in just um, three cities in the U.S., but it's one of the most interesting places I've lived. It's, it's very intimate and then it's very uh, artsy. There are um, galleries and there are artists i guess because um there's the rhode island school of design so it's sort of um this cross-pollination we are allowed to register courses um at um rhode island school of design and of course talking about these and um, we have to talk about how much um the pandemic has really destabilized and disrupted um the art scene or the writing community so most of what we have events um is um virtually so there's um the writers on writing, which is um a course that um Brown um the literary arts um department offer to undergraduates every semester. So it's um through um these um writers on writing that um artists, writers, both locally and internationally, are invited um to the department. So and then um MFS students um have the opportunity to do um have a one-on-one meeting with them. So before the pandemic, it was in person. So, you know, go for dinner, chat, conversation, and all of that. But then now it exists only virtually on Zoom, but it still happens. So we have opportunity to meet um, with the writers, the visiting writers, and um, to meet um, also with one writer in residence, poet and fiction writer. Yeah. So I think that those opportunities um, to create community and expand community exist. And Providence is really... Um, the sort of place, um, city you live and you feel this um, sense of um, community. It's intimate, like I said. And then the, the writers, um, if you don't know a writer, you know an artist or you know an artist studio where you can, you know, just um, drop by and communicate or chat with um, them. And then there is always an exhibition, a reading, a poetry slam happening somewhere. So it's this very small town that... Um, if you're bored, it's maybe because of some other reasons, not because something is not happening. And then there are the gay bars for me and then um, the eagle and all of that, which features prominently in my writing life. So, Well, before we go, I want to ask you one last question. This is what I ask every guest when they come on. What is one thing that you think Brown does really well 
And what's one way that you think they could improve? What Brand does really well is the experimentation aspect of it. Because if there's one thing that the writer needs is that sort of independence and um, having their curiosity sort of supported and not stifled. So that is one aspect I would want them to continue, really, because um, it has meant a lot for me, for my work, you know. And then the other aspect I would really, it's it's just the the same thing, but the extreme, um, the consequence of this independence is that um, it's difficult to foster community in terms of like formally foster a community. And I think that is going to change because um, there is um, the Brown Arts Institute, which was just recently started. And then um, we also in the this department is in the process of hiring um, a, a new chair. Um, this conversation about um, community um, has featured prominently in the conversations we're having with these um, prospective candidates, I think. Um, so that, and also catering to students who's... Um, interest exists outside of this sort of genre. You know, there are students who come to a program and then don't want commercial sort of um, um, success or they expect to create communities um, outside of um, the writing space, you know. So I think opportunities for those students should also exist, you know, so that it's not limited to, you know, people who are, whose um, 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 inclination is towards the experimental because there's, it's one thing to have these things available and it's also another thing to just um, leave them hanging because no one has ex, um, specifically requested for them. Yeah. Well, Chibuihe, I know you're in your last semester and so you're working on your thesis. So I just want to wish you all the best of luck in finishing that and best of luck in whatever you decide to do next. I have no doubt it's going to be amazing. So just thank you so much for stopping by and chatting with me for a bit. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, the work you do and also good luck with your own thesis and your writing life. Looking forward to reading your work sometime and then um, visiting this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.